0: the people who want to be there it's the people who need it it's the people that feel that it is useful and beneficial to their lives and to to their emotional mental health and so forth those are the people that uh, we want in the yogsha
1: hello yogis and thank you for tuning in to another episode of dharma talk i am your host henry winslow and this is episode number 41 That charming Danish voice that you just heard in the opening clip was none other than Tim Feldman, teacher of traditional Ashtanga Yoga and co-founder, co-owner of the Yoga Shala Miami Life Center down in Miami Beach, Florida. Not too long ago, I interviewed his wife, Kino McGregor. That was episode number nine, and you can check that one out in the archives if you haven't heard it already. But this interview is, is different, just as Tim is a different person, and he's got a really interesting story that will be especially of interest to any of you who have a background in dance before you got into yoga. Or if you're a teacher, because inevitably you're going to have students walk in the door of your class who are dancers or have dance in their background. Tim and I talk about his history, which included A professional dance career he was a dancer a choreographer and a dance teacher before he got into yoga so we do talk about that moving from a career in dance to practicing and teaching yoga full-time and what Tim learned in that transition we discuss how Tim used a fine arts grant from the Danish government to further his yoga study in India And then we shift gears and talk about the most significant difference between being an artist and running a small business. Lastly, he leaves us with two things that all yoga teachers must focus on in order to have the most beneficial impact on our current and future students. Now, before we dive into the interview, I do want to point out that there will be no new episode of Dharma Talk next week or the week after taking a two-week break for Christmas and the new year. So use that time to catch up on old episodes and enjoy time with friends and family. Now, stay tuned through these announcements and we'll dive into this interview with Tim Feldman. Yogis, I have a few workshops and events coming up in the New York City area that I hope that you can join me for. On January 26th, I'll be teaching a hips and twists workshop at Three Jewels NYC. If you'd like to sign up, go to henrywins.com slash events. If you'd like to dive deep into your yoga practice and yoga study, I have a couple of options for you coming up in the new year at Lighthouse Yoga School in Brooklyn, New York. In January, we are leading a 200-hour teacher training, and there are still a couple spots left if you'd like to sign up for that. In February, we are doing a shorter four-day immersion. This is a great option if you aren't so interested in teaching, but you want to learn all the things that we learn in a teacher training, posture clinics, personal sadhana or spiritual practice and obviously lots of asana class either of those two events you can sign up for at henrywindscom slash events and if you enter the code henry on your application you will save a significant amount of money off the tuition so check it out and sign up if that's of interest what's your purpose what's your vision What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode today i have the pleasure of speaking with tim feldman tim is a yoga practitioner tim teaches the traditional ashtanga yoga around the world in the lineage of Patabi joyce and Macharya. he is the co-founder of the yoga Shala miami life center and I will also add that he uh, and his wife, Keena McGregor, have a podcast of their own called Chat and Chai, which has been really fun to listen to, and I hope you all um, check that out after this. So, Tim, thank you for coming on the show. How are you today?
0: Uh, hey, Henry. <clears throat> First of all, you have a really nice radio voice, man. Thank I didn't you. realize until right now, but I'm good. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for having me on your show.
1: Yeah, my, my pleasure. Um, Tim, we always start with the same first question. That's kind of the theme of this podcast. So we'll start there. What does the word dharma mean to you? And what is your dharma as you understand it today?
0: Oh, you, you're hidden hard here <clears throat> from the we beginning. We go straight thought, into it. I
1: thought
0: you were going to say something like, what's your favorite movie or something? <laughs> but um, what does dharma mean to me? Dharma means, um, oh, a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, it means, it somehow implies that there is something that we should be doing with our life, uh, that there is perhaps a path which is uh, more right for us uh, compared to one that is less right for us. Uh, it has to do something with <clears throat> trying to figure out uh, what that is. Um, and it has to do with some of those responsibilities and duties that comes along with that. Uh, For me, when you talk about dharma, there is an ethical and um, kind of right living component which needs to uh, be addressed that has to do with how we treat ourselves, but very much uh, other people and the world and so forth. Mm -hmm.
1: A right way of living. And what is the most important Um, Or what maybe are a few things that are important in sussing out whether you are on that path of a right way of living?
0: Well, if I may, I will um, draw right into the yamas and the niyamas, uh, particularly the the yamas, where a sense of uh, kindness and loving kindness, as the Buddhists say, a sense of living where we try to hurt other people as little as possible where we coexist um, in a harmonious way with everyone and everything around us, first of all. And then also that there's some uh, kind of uh, appreciation for honesty within ourselves and within others so we can trust each other. Uh, I would say those are the two first and primary uh, uh, components to living your dharma. Uh, and. And uh, as you can hear, we already talk a little bit like moralistic and there's some ethical uh, consideration that needs to be considered here.
1: Yeah. Um, and I don't know if uh, the <coughs> listeners go to the same place I do when I hear that, but right away I'm, I'm the person who wants to complicate things. And if you're looking at those two priorities, you know, you have the mm-hmm. one of not harming people or yourself And then you have the other of being honest as much as possible. What Mm -hmm. happens when, you know, when honesty hurts?
0: Oh, if I may uh, remain within uh, Patanjali's great golden nuggets here, we do um, generally work from the idea that um, unhurtfulness is number one and truth is number two. Or oh, as the Dalai Lama says, you should only speak the pleasant truth, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is, you know, <clears throat> and the, the golden shining example is when you are, uh, your wife says, does my ass look bad in these pants, right? And you have two choices. You can be truthful or you can be loving and you know which one to choose. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, a good example. So, Tim... We, I mentioned uh, in your intro that you teach traditional Ashtanga yoga, specifically, um, you know, around the world as a guest teacher, but also you have your Yoga Shala at Miami Life Center. Yeah. What does your personal yoga practice look like these days as it relates to being a teacher and being on the move all the time? And also as it relates to being a practitioner of a traditional
0: regimented, routinized practice? Well, it's, <clears throat> um, it's a little bit less than I would like it to be. I find myself mostly on my mat five days a week. Um, that's one second. Um, I'm, I turned 52 this year, turning 53 next year. So, Uh, I generally uh, work from the idea where I ask my body a little bit more than I tell it. So when I was younger, I would tell it what to do, and then it would more likely do it. These days, I have to be more in dialogue and saying, what can we do today? (laughs) And uh, so I'm trying to negotiate how my body uh, feels to make sure that uh, both me and my body, we can, you know have a pleasurable and deep experience on the mat with no unfortunate uh, repercussions after.
1: I think that's a good way to look at it. But um, also something that I picked up from the way that you answered that question is um, there's a very clear separation of me, I, and my body. And I think when... Your body does everything that you want it to do. It's a lot easier to get confused about what I am. And I could see that as being a lesson of yoga in and of itself to have kind of a need for a dialogue between the two and how that points back to understanding what I is. Um, Have you, have you, yeah, yeah. And have you learned any, uh, what would you say has been a, a takeaway for you, um, as it relates to the evolution of your practice over time
0: Uh, how do you mean in regards to uh, what i consider me and what i consider my body and the differences and similarities
1: sure that or maybe anything else that you've kind of learned as a practitioner for many many years seeing how it's changed over time
0: oh it's a good question i think when i started i thought that I came in from dance. I was a young dancer and choreographer at the moment <clears throat> and was very interested in movement, movement in space and intricate movement and very much uh, working in the field of movement invention uh, in the creative aspect of making movements up from scratch and using many different um, types of inspiration, not only from dance, to define what was interesting to do with the body and not. Um, so when I... I started to do yoga, I saw all these intricate folding positions like Padmasana and uh, Garbapindasana and uh, Gandhubirandasana. And I thought that looks so, so interesting. So that was uh, very drawing for me uh, at that time. And also my very first teacher, Lino Miele, he moves like a dream. And uh, as a young dancer there, I just thought whatever this man is doing, whether it's dance or yoga or whatever kind of movement system he's into, I want to learn from him. So <clears throat> the combination of that drew me in and that kept me going for quite a while. I think at some moment um, that source ran dry and that happened at the same time as I started to become more interested in the underlying teachings <clears throat> about what yoga actually aims to do um, and what uh, what asana um, is placed in the yoga tradition as a vehicle for, Uh, and when I started to read more on that, that has since become uh, more interesting for me, and I I find that there's something about doing asana almost every day that works a part of my brain and a part of my consciousness uh, uh, in a way I really like, and of course now you're going to ask me what that means, right? Which I don't know what to say to. (laughs) 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 Well, man, uh, now I got myself in trouble here. So I find that there is so much uh, wisdom uh, and there's so much uh, uh, knowledge in these old shastas, like the like Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, for instance, um, which I can somewhat tap into and begin to understand a little bit better than. When I do my practice. And I find that if I don't do my practice, that goes stale. But by practicing every day, I keep some kind of a kinesthetic, continuous um, relationship uh, with this material, this knowledge, um, where it reveals itself a little bit to me uh, every day on the mat. And that can become almost addictive, I, I find. That's... that's um, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I do know what you mean when you say you, you dug yourself into a hole by opening this can of worms that you can't really explain. But I think that's part of what <laughs> is so powerful about the experience of consistent yoga practice, is There is something indescribable, ineffable about the truth mm. that comes out of it. And, you know, people say the same thing about taking mind or conscious altering drugs, too. Mm. it's like there is there are very similar um things that people talk about i just listened to this book by michael Pollan called how to change your mind and i couldn't help but notice like these um anecdotal narratives mm. about taking psychoactive drugs and how they said mm. it created an idea of unity with all and you can't explain it so you know mm. if we're t- if we're doing yoga every day maybe we don't need to do all of those things
0: mm. yeah for sure
1: um So that was really interesting to hear that you came from a background of dance. Um, You started, so you obviously had some mobility and quite a lot of body awareness if you were a dancer. What do you think happened? What, What do you think happened that made you sort of shift your perspective on the shapes being there for the sake of aesthetic and making a beautiful image and into doing something different?
0: Well, <clears throat> um, I had a big accident when I was 25, when I was a dancer, and it took me, it took me out of dance for, for about two years, and it should really have taken me out for much longer, but I was somewhat lucky. I broke a lot of <clears throat> bones and had a lot of damage to my body, which still to this day I have to be careful with. And in the process, and actually in the end of my rehabilitation after two years, a friend took me to a yoga class. At Jigamukti. and um, I started to do some of those asanas and I could feel how healing that felt uh, like completely and directly uh, nurturing and healing parts of my body which the rehabilitation had maybe not gotten to uh, in the same way uh, already so it became this tool for me at first to get my body ready for rehearsal uh, so I was ready to went out, uh, to dance for someone else, <clears throat> and um, uh, very quickly I stopped taking dance classes because I felt that this uh, type of movement, this kind of vinyasa, ashtanga-based uh, yoga asana, was making me uh, heal and making me stronger and more flexible. And then it became this little place. You know, I would roll out my yoga mat in the dance studio, and I would do my asanas. And when I finished my asanas, I would be ready for the rehearsal. So it became a, a, a very clear uh, tool that I, I suppose I just simply couldn't get around. Mm-hmm.
1: So in the beginning, it was sort of therapy and preemptive, or prehab, prehabilitation mm-hmm. for your dance. Mm-hmm. And I guess at a certain point, you made a switch where it was no longer there to serve the dancing specifically, and more to serve yourself or something, um, something yes. more general or, or broader.
0: Yes, I was um, uh, in those days. I was a dancer, and I was also teaching dance. And then a little bit later, I started to choreograph. And I found myself more and more and more rely on my yoga practice when I was teaching. I had an experience where. I was teaching a, a company. I was hired to teach and choreograph for a company. And we went in the morning technique class. And half my class was yoga. It was a, some kind of um, uh, simplified version of the primary series. And I, at, mo- at that moment, I thought, I can't do this. This makes no sense that I stand here and teach <laughs> yoga when I'm supposed to teach dance to all these people. <laughs> so I, at that moment, I cut teaching dance completely and that was around the same time also as I started to feel a little bit burned out from all the artistic work and all the you know all the hustle that 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 goes into that
1: sure yeah and and were the students your dance students were they confused uh, were they yeah. receptive to it or resistant to it when you were basically teaching a yoga class when they had signed up
0: for dance well you know it was like at at best it would be 50-50 I think that everybody would agree that they got really warm and really ready. Uh, So a dance class usually consists of some technical exercises that starts very simple and gets more and more complicated. In the beginning of a class, the complexity complexity of movement and warm-up starts to move through space. And at that time, then you switch over and you start to teach a combination of steps that, that moves through space. So, I would usually use the yoga for all the stationary, and then I would take yoga based exercises into space. And then from there, we would go into choreography, and I would teach them a phrase. Mm-hmm. And I think a good part of the, the dancers, they generally like the last bit, but they kind of thought that the first bit didn't keep them um, established in the dance vocabulary, in the balletic uh, vocabulary that they wanted to, to keep up with. Uh-huh. Does that make any sense? Was that way too technical?
1: No, it does make sense. It does make right. sense. When you got into the choreography part of the class, were you still incorporating yoga
0: movements and, and poses? Well, <clears throat> um, during those days I was uh, funded from the Danish government to uh, to create work and to travel with my work in the world. and. Uh, as part of that, they were giving me a certain uh, funding for research and development. And one of the things that I used uh, these money for was to travel to India and study Ashtanga Yoga. And uh, I would come back and I would, uh, for instance, I made a, a solo for myself that was based on the primary series. Uh, I don't think that you would be able to really see it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it was movement by movement based on the, on the primary series. So, uh, so I suppose the answer to your question is yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that is really interesting because I've met a lot of yoga practitioners who have a background in dance, but I Mm. would say that the way that they apply it is more so just in the flexibility of the body, Mm. not so much of a creative overlap in terms of applying yoga techniques to dance or dance technique into yoga. Mm. Um, so that's really cool, and w- when you started teaching yoga more explicitly and rather than you know under the guise of it being a dance class, did you find that dancers <laughs> gravitated to
0: you in your classes? Uh, uh, so let me see if I got the question right uh, right, so you said when I started to teach more yoga outside mm-hmm. of the dance, if my dancing dance dancer students would come to the yoga class was that yeah. the question, yeah. You know, there was a period of time where I just kind of stopped teaching. Um, and then my friends in the yoga world, they would ask me if I would stop their classes sometimes. If Like they would go and study with Patabi Joyce and they would need a stop for a while or they got sick, you know, whatever happens. So I would just step in and teach kind of incognito. And there wasn't a large... Um, overlap in the yoga community in those days is we're talking late 90s early 2000 um there wasn't like there was not so many people that knew about Ashtanga yoga now Tw- 20 years later you know it's everybody knows Ashtanga yoga and there's an Ashtanga class in each gym everywhere but at that time there was not so the dancers hadn't really found it yet mm-hmm. so i would teach to people that came from a yoga background which was uh, very different people that was uh,
1: usually that was doing dance right So the first time you went to um, to Mysore it was under the um, under the research grant from the Danish government for your it was yeah <laughs> yep and when, when you came <laughs> back and ended up wanting to go further into the yoga and away from the dance was there any um, backlash?
0: Uh, How do you mean backlash?
1: From you could imagine a situation where the government or whatever part of the government was uh, funding this trip was like, well, you're not even using this for dance anymore.
0: What happened? You know, yeah, I see what you mean. You know, I I think that the government in those days um, they found that I was delivering what I was promising. And as a matter of fact, the research and development uh, grants, there was not a particular product that was requested uh, from uh, to show at the end. Uh, the research and development grants, they were granted when they thought that you were uh, already an asset and that they kind of perhaps wanted to keep you inspired. You know, as an artist, inspiration to constantly hook in, to tap into a... Um live source of inspiration, it's uh, is a big deal. Um, so they, the Danish government was giving these grants, I think to uh, make sure that the artists that they choose to, chose to uh, support uh, didn't grow old and stale somehow. So I could do whatever I wanted with those money. Then I had another, another batch of money, which was for production. No, those were much much more tightly uh, uh, regulated. I see.
1: That makes sense. It's kind of mm. like um, like in the Renaissance when artists had patrons who just helped them yeah. to have the resources they needed to continue uh, putting out cool new stuff and, and inspiring the rest of the community and society.
0: Something like that.
1: We need. I think we need more of that. That sounds like a yes. pretty good deal.
0: You know, <clears throat> the Danish government, they put a lot of money into uh, arts in the 90s. And, uh, you know, there was a big crisis uh, in the early 2000s, and they started to wean all that stuff back. So I see. It, mm-hmm. It's different these days are here. But was, luckily, I'm not part of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a moment in time, and you were there yeah. at the right time. Uh, it was a good time. So how did you... Uh, move from Denmark to the U.S. and end up in Miami and opening your yoga shala?
0: Yes, yeah, so <clears throat> on one of these trips uh, traveling down to uh, Kerala to practice with Lina Mili, uh, who was my teacher at that time, I met uh, this lady called Keena McGregor. She was also on the same course <clears throat> and uh, we fell in love. And we started to travel around together. We would go to the U.S. where she's from. She's from Miami. And uh, we'd go to India and study together, and we started to go to Mysore together, and we'd be in Europe for a certain part of the year. And at some moment, um, she asked if I would be interested in moving back to Miami with her and starting up a yoga studio. And as I mentioned before, I was kind of feeling, started to feel burned out a little bit by all the the artwork um, and in need for some type of a change. Uh, so we decided to do that together, and that, and that, I think, a year or two after, in two thousand five, two thousand six, that's when we began to um, find a space in Miami, and we opened up what has since become Miami Life Center. Mm-hmm.
1: And what has been your adjustment? Um, do you like living in in South Miami? It's a big difference from Denmark.
0: It's huge difference. You <clears throat> honestly. Henry took me about five years to like it because um, Miami is so different from the kind of cities I had been living in before. Before I came here, I asked a friend, how's Miami? He knew Miami a little bit. And he th- thought for a moment, and then he said to me, well, it's a city without art. And at that time, I really think it was. I do think it has changed. I think that the preferences of the people that has lived in Miami for a very long time has not been to be artistically or culturally active, but to somewhat perhaps find some of those simple pleasures in life, like good food, good weather, good company, a nice house, you know? You don't need to put on a lot of clothes every time you go out, you can just put your flip-flops, and that's basically what you need. So I think that that kind of easy living was the the, the prevalence of what was going on here. Um, at that time. So I had I had to do big adjustment uh, to uh, to find a way to live there.
1: Did you ever feel pulled to go back to the dancing when you were transplanted into a city that you felt lacked art?
0: A little bit. Um, and I did say yes to a couple of minor works uh, while I was here uh, opening a yoga studio. Um, I decidedly... Uh, didn't go for any bigger work because I wanted to start up a new chapter of my life. Right. But uh, if, yeah, with a few old friends, I would uh, move into some uh, movement exploration and choreography. But uh, these days, you know, people ask me, "Do you still want to do that? Don't you si- miss, miss? Don't you miss dancing?" And honestly, I don't at all. As a matter of fact, my friend yesterday said, do you want to go to Cuba with me for an improvisational festival? And we, we go on stage together. We used to dance together. And I just, I was horrified by the prospect. I thought, oh, no, I would never want to be back on stage. <laughs> so I was sort of flat out, no.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, sometimes it pays off to make a hard break with something in order to hmm. really create the space for a new chapter, which is what you had already done in so many other ways by, you know, coupling up and moving to a new country. So I can see how that would be a difficult decision, but also a really rewarding Mm. one.
0: Yeah, I feel it has been.
1: And since you opened up the Miami Life Center, what sort of new challenges have have you faced?
0: Well, it was an interesting uh, thing for me to start to run a small business, uh, which In essence, a yoga shala is in the West. Uh, I was used to uh, working in cutting art, uh, dance and art. And there's a notion there where, there's a certain arrogant notion, you could almost say, where as an artist, you attempt to find some eccentric uh, part in yourself, which is hopefully a step ahead of what the world has yet experienced. And... Uh, you try to bring that to life. Um, not to compare myself at all, but Picasso is a good example of that. <clears throat> he would bring new styles, new ways, new sensibilities into art that people had never seen before. Didn't really know existed. Um, and when you start to to run a business, you're doing exactly the opposite. You're starting to cater to a Group of people's needs, you're starting to sell a product. Even when you work with classic traditional yoga that has a lineage and a um, parampara, you're still in a space where you need to try to sell this product to other people, especially when you're a new business. So I found myself in this precarious situation where I had chosen to do yoga because I felt it was. Perhaps um, more significant to me, it was a spiritual practice that I found uh, took me to a place where I did not need to be extroverted and suddenly I sat and I had to try to sell this little sacred jewel. And I, was, I had a lot of conflict with that in the beginning. But my wife, Kino, <clears throat> she had some experience doing that. And my good friend, Greg Nardi, who was uh, part of Opening Miami Lives, and we were this little trio. Uh, they both knew something about running a small yoga business, so I learned a lot from them. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I've definitely um, grappled with the same internal conflict, and that was something that made me really resistant to becoming a yoga teacher in the first place. Mm. Um, but ultimately for me, you know, what it came down to is I want to be able to share this and mm. to, to share and make it and give it your full attention, mm-hmm. at least in this society, it requires that you have mm. to, um, accept money for it in order to continue doing it and, and sharing with more people, especially at the business level, um, yeah. more so than an individual teacher. Um, it's really your responsibility to, to keep the doors open so that you can continue serving so it is difficult it's definitely difficult and i can relate to that a lot um thank you for sharing
0: yeah i totally agree <clears throat> I, I i do think that there is a i do find that there is a balance between um trying to sell this product called classic yoga and uh, just simply sharing it um and i find that over the years, I find that I get a little bit better and better and maybe more and more courageous uh, in just teaching it as it is. <clears throat> and if, we, if I may turn the whole thing upside down a little bit, I feel that the product, if I may call it uh, that for a, for a second, the product is not a new coffee pot. It's not a new, you know, uh, tea tray that I'm trying to sell anybody that nobody essentially needs. The product that, that I try to sell is a product that will benefit in my opinion because I believe in this uh, system will benefit everybody so by the end of the day I've come to think that I don't really need to push this uh, product so hard I just need to create platforms where people can get in contact with it Mm-hmm. So, such as uh, Instagram and so forth but the product but the product itself the, the yoga practice that that speaks for itself
1: yeah totally um, I'm with you you know if people experience it maybe not the uh-huh. first time but if people give themselves a chance to really investigate, then mm-hmm. the the quote unquote product really does sell itself at least to the people for whom it resonates and maybe that's not everyone in this lifetime, although I do also believe that everyone can benefit from, from a consistent yoga practice. the people who mm. are receptive to it and ready to embrace it will will feel that without it being sold in a traditional yeah. sense yeah
0: you know we used to work from a paradigm back in the days when we were <clears throat> making performances and we were trying to get uh, audience into the theater. And we considered, we would rather we, who we needed in the theater was the people who wanted to see the show. We did not, the worst person, the worst that could happen is that we got someone into this theater that someone bought a ticket for the show that didn't like the show. We would rather have an empty chair by the end of the day. And it's the same with yoga. You gotta—it's the right people you want you want in the shala. It's not any people. It's the people who want to be there. It's the people who need it. It's the people that feel that it is useful and beneficial to their lives and that to to their emotional, and mental health, and so forth. Those are the people that uh, we want in the yoga shala. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I have a lot of yoga teachers and. I would guess a a fair number of yoga studio owners and and yoga business entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast, do you have any words of advice for anyone who's maybe in your shoes, but a few years um, earlier and maybe just getting started with opening a yoga studio, how they can reconcile that same conflict if they're going through it and maybe a tip or two for um creating a good experience that invites the right people into this into the school rather than bringing in anyone and potentially having the wrong experience having that person at the show who didn't want to see it
0: mm. well i think mm-hmm. education and communication is maybe the two most important things so first of all uh, i think we cannot uh, train and practice and educate ourselves enough you know, it's an ongoing thing that needs to be there at all time. In that way, our information is fresh and clear and experienced. So that's very important. And when there is a solid base within us uh, that we can draw upon, we can step aside almost and just communicate that wisdom, that knowledge, that that exists and that has been passed along to us. And then our job is after that, that is to figure out how do I communicate this in the most kind, honest, and um, effective way to, to each individual. So we can learn to talk about it very simple. I think, was it Einstein who said that if you cannot explain it to your grandmother, if you cannot ex- explain a paradigm to your grandmother, you haven't understood it well enough. So I think we need to find out how we can talk about yoga in a way that everyone can understand it at all times without feeling, you know, that they need to study more or that they're stupid or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It it kind of really goes back to that same uh, pair of ethical principles that you mentioned in the beginning as being part of our Mm. dharma. Um, Mm. Can you be honest in a way that is... Um, not only truthful, but also non harming, even emotionally. And that's definitely our duty as as teachers and carriers of this torch, so to speak, if we want to share this to people who are right at the cusp of being ready for it, but haven't been exposed yet. Mm -hmm. The way to do it is not to drown people with something that seems scary, intimidating, or pretentious. So I, I love what you just said. I think that's a really, really smart point.
0: Mm. all right Thank um, you yeah totally
1: um, <laughs> we were also speaking before we got on the got on the recording here for this podcast um, that I know you've got another hobby which is riding yeah. motorcycles and you just yeah. came back from a trip you um, you mind sharing a little bit about that
0: uh, not at all yeah I have it I have a hobby I've been driving motorcycles maybe for 10 years a little bit more started driving motorcycles in India as transportation, and then slowly just realized that this was really a lot of fun. And as I moved to Miami after some years, I bought a motorcycle, and um, I recently bought a new motorcycle, and I just, this new motorcycle I like better than any motorcycle I've been riding before. So I'm I'm currently in a process where I'm trying to figure out where does entertainment fit in my spiritual life yeah, because if you if you read Patanjali there's not a lot of mentioning of entertainment in there. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And every morning, and then I'm supposed to go on my yoga mat, but in my garage is this two wheeler that I just I really wanna ride. And so I'm sitting there on the stoop to the garage, looking at my motorcycle and think and talk to it, as a matter of fact, and say, you know what, I'm going to have to go on the mat for a couple of hours, but I'll be back. And then we can take a ride. <laughs> <laughs> so at the moment, you know, my yoga practice and my motorcycle is kind of two opposite um, entities because of uh, the time I have available in the day that I could potentially free up. So, uh, yeah, that's my that's my new um my new, what's it called, uh, paradigm of suffering in my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, the angel on your shoulder and the devil on your shoulder calling exactly. you over to the bike. Exactly. Do you ever find that there are aspects of the yoga practice that apply while you are taking these trips when you're on the ride?
0: Oh, yes. So that's where you were going. So <clears throat> we spoke about that a little before, didn't we? So, yeah, so... um I had this experience recently, for instance, where uh, I was riding on the highway, it was raining, and uh, we were going 80 miles per hour, or something like that, and uh, there was lots of cars around, and it was getting dark, and um, <clears throat> when all that compiles together, then that get, can be a little bit scary on a motorcycle, because the protection level is uh, is still kind of low. So i tend to get a little nervous i tend to get a little anxious and as you probably know when we get anxious and nervous then the body starts to get a little bit more tight and we and our reflexes start to get a little slower and so forward so i was thinking how can i relax a little bit in this moment <clears throat> so i started to do some Muja breathing and I start to do a little bit of mula because that tends to help, that takes me down into my mulatara. And when I'm there, then I tend to overthink things a little bit less. But then at the same time, I was thinking, wait a minute, there's uh, two parts to this uh, situation right now. There's me in the motorcycle and all the trouble is happening above the motorcycle. It's all my thinking, it's all my physical thing, it's my nervous system, all that. And when I listen to the engine, there's no problem. The the engine is doing exactly what it wants to do. And if I just keep still and quiet and let the motorcycle do whatever it needs, we're going to be fine. And then I tried to do the thing where I dropped down into the motor, into this wonderful mechanical construct that the boxer engine of the BMW is. And the the motor was completely hunky-dory, completely happy. And I thought, somebody's there, man. So then from there I just dropped my, my, my consciousness into the motor and then we were riding along and it was this whole spiritual experience. It was my little Zen moment there.
1: Yeah. You went from dharana to dhyana straight to samadhi. Right? Something in- like that, yeah. Inside, inside the motorcycle, <laughs> yeah. in the engine. Yeah. Tim, do you have any um, things coming up either at the Miami Life Center or elsewhere that you would want to share with the audience? Maybe some things that um, our listeners might be able to join you for?
0: Oh, <clears throat> yes, um, first of all, we have um, uh, my teacher, uh, Shalaji. He's coming in, uh, in May to guest us again in Miami, the, first, the very first week of Miami, of, of May from May 1 to 7, uh, 2019. And he'll be teaching primary series and intermediate series, and we would love to see you down here. He is on a U.S. tour. Uh, right before that, he'll be in Stanford, California, teaching for a week there, same program. And when he leaves us here in Miami, he'll go to New York and teach up for Eddie Stern uh, at the Brooklyn Yoga Club at Sri Yoga Yoga New York. Um, I forgot the exact uh, dates, but uh, the week after that. So that is so exciting for us. It's such an honor to be able to uh, welcome uh, Sharat that he says yes to our invitations to come here the second time. That's super exciting. So that's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is I'm teaching a, a workshop in March at Miami Life Center for one week. We focus on classic uh, yoga. We do myself style in, in the morning and I will be teaching yoga sutras in the afternoon, which I'm very anxious about. I have to drop down into my internal boxer engine for that. It's first time that I teach a full week of um, of more, more like academic structure yoga suit. Usually I prefer just to use it as part of the asana teaching and talk about it when it comes up with the student. I feel that's a really, perhaps the best way to learn what Patanjali is trying to say, what yoga is about, but... Um, I'm going to try to give it a go, you know, in that good old-fashioned uh, classroom format. So come down and support me. By the way, those those uh, classes are free, because uh, you know I don't know to which degree I can deliver. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so uh, you you heard the man come down to Miami Life Center on in March for the Yoga Sutras lecture series, and in May. You can um, take class from Shirat Joyce, uh, either in Miami or another one of his stops in the U.S. tour. Um, if you're in New York, he's going to Eddie Stern Shala. Very cool. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. And Tim, apart from getting your message out on this podcast, what are you doing today to live your dharma?
0: What am I doing today? I have a bunch of emails that it's calling at me. Is that part of? I suppose that's part of my dharma. I suppose so that- it is. that's it for today
1: (laughs) cool well now seems like the perfect time to move on to the final section of this interview all of these um dharma talk interviews end this way with what i call the prana round so i'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions and ask you to answer minimum one word maximum one sentence okay Mm. yep here we go yeah always got to get the nice throat clearing in before the front around this this is where you sink into the muladhara <laughs> i'm like Are you holy cow what's he gonna <laughs> ask me <laughs> all right here we go in one word why do you practice yoga knowledge what is your favorite yoga pose
0: and why sure, i don't know i've just found myself the last couple of months i really love it
1: and you know i I think patabi joyce said that all of the poses are contained in the surya namaskara so that's a nice answer to get them all in
0: Mm, maybe yeah yeah (laughs) Uh,
1: what is the single best cue or piece of advice you've ever received from a teacher
0: always go gentle
1: that's a good one Mm. recommend one book either modern
0: or ancient for our listeners the bhagavad-gita any, any commentary that you prefer. I personally really like Ignat Ishwaran's uh, commentaries. I think he's a poet by heart. All right.
1: Is yoga for everyone?
0: Yes, yoga is for everyone, but it takes a little bit of effort. So you gotta be willing to uh, put in a little bit of effort.
1: Last question how can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma?
0: Oh, um, you can go to my website, timfeldman.com or my business website, miamilifecenter.com, mashallah. Uh, You can support me by coming to my workshop and see if my uh, teachings is right for you. And if they're not, then find another teacher which is right for you.
1: Very good. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was my pleasure. And I hope that we can continue this conversation again
0: soon. It will be a pleasure to continue. Henry, I hope to see you soon in Miami or in California or something like that. And thank you so much for having me in
1: you got something out of this episode if you like dharma talk and want to keep it going please do me a huge favor and subscribe rate and review on itunes i know it's not the most convenient thing to do but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it and hey if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me you can do that on instagram at henry wins otherwise i'll talk to you next week And until then, keep living your dharma.